Welcome to Murder Bucket. I'm your host, Hannah, and this is the podcast where I dive deep into murders, paranormal activity, abductions, kidnappings, and weird stuff. Let's see what I'm going to pull out of the bucket this week. Good evening, Murder Bucket family, and welcome to Tuesday. Here at Murder Bucket, we are in the cult miniseries, and we have another crazy one for you tonight. In tonight's episode, we are discussing the ins and outs of the Children of God cult. But first, as always, let's do our week-slash-weekend recap. My week wasn't that interesting except for the actual weekend. Friday evening, we had a women's conference at my church that was called the If Gathering. So that was Friday night at 7 o'clock and it ended at about 9.30. And then Saturday, it started again at 8 and it ended around 5.30 that evening. And yes, it was the entire day, but it was absolutely phenomenal. If you have never heard of the If Gathering, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Go Google it, watch YouTube videos, read stories about it, read all of the like breakout sessions that they have and all that kind of stuff. If you're not interested, no big deal. Just thought I would share. So Saturday in the middle of the day, I actually ended up leaving the conference and went to a friend's baby shower. But while I was there, I really only got to eat a little bit of food, and then I had to leave and go back to the conference. My husband was absolutely wonderful all day long on Saturday because he hung out with our daughter, which, not called babysitting, it is just hanging out with your child, and he did the majority of the laundry in our room, including our daughter's clothes. So that was fantastic. Then Sunday, we went to church. We went out to lunch with a couple of friends of ours. And then we came back home, took a probably what, like an hour and a half nap, and then finished up the laundry and then hung out for the rest of the day. Monday, my husband usually plays D&D with a group of his friends, but the one who is the dungeon master is actually having to work extended shifts at his job. He is an electrician and is in the union. So he is unable to do that right now. So they are taking like a little mini break. So instead, we just hung out, watched some TV, played a couple of games, and, you know, just sat around and did really nothing. Now, today is Tuesday, and... I believe I mentioned last week that we implemented a new system last Monday, so February 28th, and that last week was actually kind of crazy. Um, Of course, with a brand new system, you're going to have glitches, you're going to have problems. So a lot of last week was trying to fix those problems. Um, We actually had the, like, team from this company that were there to fix the problems like immediately as they were happening and actually see them like getting fixed and that kind of thing. So that was really good. 
and kind of like scary at the same time, only because we did have a lot of issues and we had a lot of problems with people creating their online portal and getting all of their work like attached to their portal so that they could see them. And we thought that like everything was good. Of course, again, it's only been a week. So yesterday really wasn't that bad. We got through the day. We had like minimal glitches, minimal errors. We were able to really correct them on our own. But then today just kind of seemed like we were back at square one. Um, I don't really, I don't want to bash anybody, but there were just a lot of like frustrating moments with like people that were coming in and things not working correctly or not knowing how to do something specifically in the system. So today was just super stressful. And I really hope tomorrow is going to be better. It is a little better now because I am here with you. You're hanging out and waiting for me to start this episode. So let's go ahead and do it. The Children of God David Berg was born on February 18, 1919, in Oakland, California. Both of his parents were Christian evangelists. His grandfather, John Brandt, was a Disciple of Christ minister, author, and lecturer. In the mid-1920s, John entered into full-time Christian service. For many years, he was a Methodist circuit rider and eventually became a leader of the Alexander Campbell movement, the Disciples of Christ. It was known as a restoration movement that developed into the current Protestant denomination known as the Christian Church. Before David was born, his mother had given birth to her first child and shortly after broke her back in an accident. For the next five years, she was disabled and spent the majority of her time bedridden. After she fully recovered, she devoted her life to active Christian service as pastors and evangelists. David spent his early years traveling around with his parents. By 1924, they settled in Miami, Florida, and his mother led a series of large revivals at the Miami Gospel Tabernacle. Over the next 14 years, his parents were pastors at many churches throughout Miami. Their financial status depended entirely on the generosity of their parishioners, which often made it difficult to make ends meet. This taught David to inherit a lifelong habit of frugality. By the late 1930s, David's parents wanted to return to their favorite form of ministry, traveling evangelists. In 1935, David graduated from Monterey High School located in Monterey, California. He then attended Elliott School of Business Administration. On July 22, 1944, he married Jane Miller, and they had a total of four children together. Once he finished his schooling, he decided to fall into his father's footsteps and become a minister in the Christian and Missionary Alliance in 1968. According to Wikipedia.com, Christian and Missionary Alliance is an evangelical Protestant denomination within the higher life movement of Christianity. Their headquarters is located in Brazil. While he was in California, he had a following of what he called born-again hippies who would gather at a coffee house in Huntington Beach. David made this statement in an article on Timeline.com. 
I saw something was really happening and was really going to explode. I just knew it. I saw the Lord was really doing something. That's when I began to come down and teach in my dark glasses, beret, baggy pants, old torn jacket, and tennis shoes. He believed that in order to attract the day's youth, he needed to completely change his approach. He was hoping to appeal to a wider group of vulnerable, disaffected youth. After he received a lot of resistance from local churches, he decided to take his followers on the road. By then, David was known to his followers as Father David, and his wife was known as Mother Eve. They began to perform involuntary conversions in the streets and distribute pamphlets. One time, while camping in the Lois and Clark Park, a news reporter called them the Children of God and the name stuck. In 1970, David and Jane got divorced and then he immediately married Karen Zerby. She was dubbed Mama Maria. After he married Karen, David and his followers decided to return to Southern California and there was well over 200 members. For most of his life, David lived in seclusion and the only way that he communicated with his followers was to write more than 3,000 letters that he called Mo Letters. Here is a short audio clip of a letter titled Mountain Man and Seven Ways to Know God's Will. Long after the family was in darkness, I could still see the sun. There's more light on the mountain. The valley is almost always dark. It's full of people and things, but they're usually in darkness. The mountain's also windy and cold, but it's thrilling. And you really have to have the feeling that it's really worth dying for. Any mountain, the mountain of this life, the mountain of accomplishment, the mountain of obstacles, of difficulty, if you're going to climb them, they have to be worth dying for. You have to be brave. You have to brave the wind, the cold, and the storm, which are all symbolic of our adversities. Every time of testing and trial and sifting is a time of decision. Now, how do you make a decision? For a Christian, what is a decision? What are you trying to find? The will of God. So the question is, how do you find the will of God? You think of a good verse on it? Any good scriptures on the will of God? The first one that comes to my mind is, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that ye that your body is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may know what is that good and acceptable will of God. So what is the first requirement to finding God's will? Having no will of your own, In a letter written in January of 1972, David stated that he was God's prophet from the contemporary world. Many of these letters contained public acknowledgement of his own failings and weaknesses. There is a letter titled, My Confession, I Was an Alcoholic. In another letter titled, Flee as a Bird to Your Mountain, he wrote, God was going to destroy the U.S. and we had to get out. This made many of his followers interpret that it was a warning to leave America. 
In another letter that he wrote, he stated that all members should tithe, and the reasoning for this was that all pastors received tithes from their church, and because he was giving them his wonder-working words that the members were required to read, that they should send tithes to his office. By 1972, the Children of God had well over 130 communities in 70 different countries. According to the BBC, it was reported that there were over 10,000 members by the mid-1970s. In 1973, David introduced a proselytizing method called flirty fishing to his inner circle. Flirty fishing is a form of evangelism by sexual intimacy. Female members would apply their sex appeal on men from outside the cult, using the occasion to proselytize for Jesus and seek donations. This was a primary source of financial support and political protection. It was criticized as religious prostitution. David believed that Christians were free through God's grace to do great links to show the love of God to others, even as far as meeting their sexual needs. I don't know about you, but I've been going to church since the moment I can remember, and I am pretty positive that there was no pastor at any church I attended that told me I had to have sex with somebody to tell them about the love of God. Now, it wasn't until 1976 that David introduced this method to the rest of his members of his church. In February of 1978, David decided to change the name of his group to the Family of Love. When he did this, he also reorganized the group entirely and dismissed more than 300 leading members because he heard rumors of reports of serious misconduct and abuse of their positions. The group was then accused of sexually abusing and raping minors within the organization. When flirty fishing became a popular thing to do within the group, David wrote one of his Mo letters titled, The Devil Hates Sex, But God Loves It. The group claimed that over 100,000 people received the gift of salvation through Jesus because of the flirty fishing. Researcher Bill Brambridge states that he was able to obtain data directly from David that said between 1974 and 1987, 223,000 989 people had sexual contact with a member while they were practicing flirty fishing. In a 1984 expose, David's daughter Deborah claimed that he attempted to have sex with her several times and engaged in continuous relationships with his older daughter Faith. He did this with people other than his immediate family. Deborah stated, that at one point he preached a sermon he titled Sexual Sharing to all of his followers, stating this, God created boys and girls to be able to have children by 12 years of age. In 1988, during an interview with 2020, he stated that it was just a piece of educational material and that it was fun to watch a child experience life. He would reassure parents that by allowing kids to explore sex at any age, they were raising children the natural way. Here is a short audio clip from the introduction of this very episode, and it is extremely disturbing. 
Good evening, I'm Hugh Downs. And I'm Barbara Waters, and this is 2020. On the ABC News Magazine, 2020, with Hugh Downs and Barbara Waters. Tonight, the cult Children of God, founded by Moses David Berg, he reportedly sanctioned sex among children. I practice what I preach. And I boys and girls, hallelujah. To win converts, women members entice total strangers. Only the flirting was more than flirting. It was actually, you know, religious prostitution. Bizarre? This woman thought so. It's why she left Children of God. David felt as though that the group was running with very little common standards of conduct and wanted to tighten their standards to ensure everyone was provided a wholesome environment. So in March of 1989, he shortened the name again to The Family. He sent out a memo to everyone reminding them that any sexual activities between an adult and a child were forbidden within the group, and you would be excommunicated from the group immediately if caught. In a statement written on xfamily.org under their history page, a spokesperson for that group stated, Due to the fact that our current zero-tolerance policy regarding sexual interaction between adults and minors was not in our literature published before 1986, we came to the realization that during the transitional stage of our movement, from 1978 until 1986, there were cases when some minors were subject to sexual inappropriate advances. This was corrected officially in 1986 when any conduct between an adult and a minor was declared an excommunicable offense. At this time, David claimed that there were well over 9,000 members worldwide, with 750 of them in the United States. David died in November of 1994 in Portugal. There is no known cause of death that I was able to find online. I did find where it stated that he was buried in Costa da Caprica and then later his remains were cremated. Now, sometime between 1994 and 1995, after David died, the Right Honorable Lord Justice Alan Ward in the United Kingdom had abandoned the practice of abusive sex involving minors as well as using corporal punishment. He required the group denounce any of David's writing that were responsible for children within the group having been subjected to sexually inappropriate behavior. He concluded that the group was now deemed a safe environment for children. I think not, sir. After David's death, his wife Karen took over the leadership role within the group. She immediately implemented the Love Charter in February of 1995. On web.archive.org, there is an article titled, An Overview of Our Governing Charter. It states this regarding exactly what the Love Charter is. The Charter is basically comprised of two main components, the Charter of Responsibilities and Rights and the Fundamental Family Rules, along with the Explanations and Appendices. It outlines the most important and basic principles goals and beliefs of our movement, and codifies the methods of government. Shortly before his death in late 1994, the family's founder, David Brandt Berg, studied and approved a draft of this document. 
Each aspect of the charter is based on his writings and teachings and quotations from his nearly 3,000 published letters written over the past three decades, accompany most of sections of this document. Although the charter itself is new, the doctrines and principles upon which it is based are not. Existing beliefs and practices which are regarded as essential have been drawn from amongst the tens of thousands of pages of family literature of formalized into one document. This provides easy reference to the most important principles and rules of the family that are presently scattered throughout the movement's literature. The primary purpose of the Charter is to provide a well-defined and easy-to-understand broad governing structure. Within these guidelines, ample opportunity is provided for family members to follow what they believe is God's will for them personally and to freely operate according to their own initiative. It has long been the desire of David Berg and his wife, successor Maria, that family members be able to follow the Lord in accordance to God's word with a minimum of oversight or direction from the leadership, while at the same time maintaining certain common standards necessary for operating as a unified group. The Charter establishes a clear framework whereby this wish can be fulfilled. The family has been moving towards having smaller, more easily manageable numbers of personnel in each of its community homes. This trend, combined with the mechanics of the charter, will ensure that all members are able to actively participate in the governing of their own communities without the need for much assistance from area leadership. Those in the area leadership will thus be freer to channel their time and energies into prayer and studying God's Word, as well as offering advice and counsel, teaching and training others, rather than being so directly involved in the day-to-day affairs of the homes. In 2004, the group changed their name again to the Family International and still go by that to this day. On their website, thefamilyinternational.org, this is what they state is their mission. The primary goal of the Family International is to provide the quality of life of others by sharing the life-giving messages of love, hope, and salvation found in God's Word. We believe that God's love, applied on the practical level to our daily lives, is the key to resolving many of society's problems, even in the complex and fast-paced world of today. Through imparting the hope and guidance found in the Bible's teachings, We believe that we can work toward building a better world, changing the world one heart at a time. Their statement of faith says this, The Family International is an international Christian community committed to sharing the message of God's love with people around the globe. We believe that everyone can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which affords happiness and peace of mind as well as the motivation to help others and to share the good news of his love. Our fundamental beliefs are generally in accordance with those held by Christians the world over. We also embrace some untraditional doctrines. Our application of the foundation principle of God's law of love that Jesus taught, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves, which he said fulfills all the law and prophets, is a defining feature of our lives and our faith. And finally, 
their religious and racial tolerance, says this. It is an inherent component of our Christian faith to extend a hand of acceptance and tolerance to all people, offering them a gospel that makes no distinctions as to ethnicity, color, or nationality. Since the founding of our movement in 1968, members of the Family International have ministered in over 150 countries, and our members represent nearly 90 nationalities. In the interest of creating tolerant, pluralistic society, we believe it is important to oppose religious and racial discrimination and prejudice in all forms and to actively promote tolerance and understanding. We maintain that human life is sacred and that each person should be respected as an individual created in the image of God. It is our belief that God's love is the solution to humankind's problem, even in today's complex society. As a religious and social service-minded organization, we translate these principles to the practical level through sharing God's words of hope, love, and salvation, and through active participation in a wide range of humanitarian and relief efforts. Let's go over some notable members who were in this group a long time ago and got out, and ones who are currently in today. Jeremy Spencer, who is a founding member of Fleetwood Mac, joined the group in 1971, immediately after leaving the band. He and his wife moved to the U.S. to settle with the group, and he formed a new band with several members. They recorded an album titled Jeremy Spencer and the Children in 1972. In 1975, he moved to Brazil and then to Italy in 1977. According to wikipedia.com, he still works for the Children of God as a book illustrator and a story writer. Christopher Owens was raised in the group with his parents. He is a member of the San Francisco indie band called Girls. Celeste and Christine Jones and Juliana Buring wrote a book titled Not Without My Sister. In this autobiography, it details extensive abuse they suffered when they were members of this group. Now, you might recognize Juliana Buring as she was the first woman to bike around the world. Rose McGowan, an actress that is best known for Planet Terror, Jawbreaker, Grindhouse, and Charmed, grew up in the cult but left when she became an adult. She talked with Howard Stern and People Magazine regarding her childhood being raised in this group. She also wrote a book called Brave. River Phoenix, an actor that is best known for My Own Private Idaho, Stand By Me, The Mosquito Coast, and Running on Empty, grew up in the group with his siblings between 1972 and 1978. In 1991, he did an interview with Details Magazine where he stated that the group was ruining people's lives. In 1993, he died of a drug overdose. Joaquin Phoenix, an actor that is best known for her, Walk the Line, Gladiator, and The Master grew up in the group with his siblings between 1972 and 1978. Rain Phoenix, an actress that is best known for O, Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, Hitch, and Happiness, 
grew up in the group with her siblings. Summer Phoenix, an actress that is best known for The Believer, The Faculty, SLC Punk, and Esther Kane, grew up in the group with her siblings. Liberty Phoenix, an actress that is best known for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and Kate's Secret, grew up in the group with her siblings. Susan Justice, an American pop rock singer and guitarist, best known for her self-recorded album, The Subway Recordings, grew up in the group but later left in her adulthood. Ricky Rodriguez, who was formerly known as David Moses Zerby, the son of Karen Zerby, the current leader, spent his childhood and some of his adulthood in this group. He murdered his childhood sexual abuser and then killed himself in 2005. And finally, Taylor Stevens, an author who was brought up in the group from the age of 12 until she was able to leave in her 20s with her two children. And finally, we're going to talk about a few places where the media featured the group. A 1971 documentary called The Jesus Trip by Dennis Toohey. It features interviews with the Children of God members. A 1994 TV documentary called Children of God by John Smithson. It details a family and the abuse of their three underage daughters. A documentary called Children of God, Lost and Found by Noah Thompson was featured at the 2007 Slam Dance Film Festival. There is a UK documentary called Cult Killer, The Rick Rodriguez Story. The well-known podcast called The Last Podcast on the Left featured this cult in a four-part series. An A&E ran a short series titled Cults and Extreme Beliefs. Episode 3 is all about the children of God. And that concludes tonight's episode. Now, last week, I realized that it was the first episode of the month, and I forgot to include the True Crime News Corner information. So, I'm just going to do it tonight. And as I mentioned in several episodes ago, I did come up with a better intro for the True Crime News Corner. So here you go. True Gregory McMichael told a federal court on February 3rd that he was withdrawing his plans to plead guilty in federal court. Instead, he will stand trial. Now, as I mentioned in last month's True Crime News Corner, the agreement that was reached was that he would plead guilty to a single hate crime charge in exchange for prosecutors recommending that he serve the first 30 years in federal prison. U.S. District Judge Lisa Wood said she was not comfortable with the sentencing guidelines. Arbery's family also disagreed with the deal. Therefore, his agreement was denied by U.S. District Judge Lisa Wood, and the trial proceedings were set to begin on Monday, February 7th. 35-year-old Brandon Case and 58-year-old Gregory Case of Brookhaven, Mississippi, were charged with aggravated assault and conspiracy after they chased down a FedEx driver and shot at them. 24-year-old DeMontario Gibson stated that he was driving an unmarked FedEx van and wearing a uniform 
and had just finished dropping off a package at a house when the two men attempted to cut him off as he was leaving the driveway. He swerved around them and then noticed that one of the men had a gun and had it pointed directly at his van. That man then motioned for him to stop. Instead of stopping, he began to drive away and then was shot at. The shots fired damaged the van that he was renting and several of the packages inside. He then stated that the truck began to chase him down the highway before they eventually turned around. 61-year-old Carrie Smith, who calls himself Mr. Rape, Torture, and Kill, was arrested on February 4th after failing to abide by sex offender registration guidelines. The reasoning for this is for his failure to properly register his email address and social media accounts as required. He was also accused of using his Facebook account to harass and intimidate the mother of the boy that he admitted to having sex with. He told police that he wanted to scare her because he was unhappy with the things that she wrote about him online. He sent her several messages stating that he was back in the area. 26-year-old Brandon Lawson disappeared in August of 2013 in a lonely stretch of highway in Coke County, Texas. On February 4th, Texas Rangers conducted a search in the vicinity of Brandon's last location and found human remains. The family hopes that DNA evidence will prove that the remains belong to Brandon. As of today, March 8th, I have not found any information if the DNA results have come back or not. On February 4th, two Miami men were sentenced to 41 months in federal prison for stealing 192 medical ventilators that were intended to treat critically ill COVID-19 patients in El Salvador. They were worth approximately $3 million. On February 8th, Cynthia Gardner sat in a courtroom in Memphis, Tennessee to await her sentencing. She was found guilty back in December of 20 counts that included first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and neglect. In 2016, she stabbed and killed four of her children, ranging from six months old to four years old. Her oldest son, who was seven years old at the time, was the only survivor after he was able to escape. At the end of the day, she was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 51 years. Kim Potter was sentenced to two years in prison on February 18th after she was found guilty of first and second degree manslaughter for the killing of Dante Wright. And finally, Gregory McMichael, Travis McMichael, and William Bryan were found guilty in a federal hate crimes trial on February 22nd. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode, and stay tuned next week as we will have another installment in our cult miniseries. Before you go, please take a moment to listen to this promo from my friends at the Crime Divers Podcast. Are you fascinated by true crime like us? If so, check out our podcast, Crime Divers, hosted by me, Jill, and me, Laura. 
Look out for new episodes every Tuesday when we discuss true crime from around the world. So what are you waiting for? Come join us as we dive in. Thanks for sticking around to the end. I hope you have enjoyed tonight's episode. Be sure to check us out on Instagram at Murdbucket, Twitter at The Murder Bucket, and Facebook at Bucket Murd. Check out weekly posts regarding new episodes and chime in on the weekend slash week recaps. I would love to get to know you better. Have a great day.